1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 63. This show is brought to you by people just like you, who have become premium members through the podcast's Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash historyofthegreatwar. And I'd like to thank Chris, Dawn, Gretchen, Taylor, and Mike, who have become premium members already. In this episode, we are talking about Verdun. When I think of Verdun, I see a French soldier in a broken trench, with his gun up but his head hanging down. He is in what used to be a wooded area, but the trees have just been shattered by artillery fire. He is covered in mud, and he looks completely exhausted. He is also completely alone. This mental picture has stuck with me through the years, ever since I first read about the battle. Even now, having read hundreds of pages and spending so many hours thinking about the battle, why it happened, what went wrong, if I close my eyes and think of Verdun, I still see that exact same image. The battle that would last ten months on the banks of the Meuse would leave a much greater image on the collective French and German psyche both during and after the war than almost any other battle. At first, the battle was built up to be the deadliest in the war, and even though this fact is not true, that would not really matter. In many ways, the impact of Verdun goes far beyond the casualty lists, even though they were quite lengthy. The narrative of the battle is interesting on both sides. When you look at the German side, they were launching a large offensive in the West for the first time since 1914. But what their objectives were and how they slowly completely lost touch with the original intentions of the battle is a story unto itself. On the French side, at first they were just trying to defend a spot in the line, just like they would of any other area where the Germans attacked. But the city of Verdun and its surroundings slowly became the point that the French army would either defend or die trying. And while the French army would survive, Verdun would put cracks in the wall that would finally come tumbling down in 1917 the point that both of these armies put so much of themselves into was strategically completely worthless. It's an odd fate that the two biggest battles of 1916 would take place on points in the line that were by themselves completely worthless in the grand scheme of things. Both Verdun and the Somme were basically just points in the line that became so much more. This will be the first of many episodes on the course of events at Verdun. Over the course of the next 13 weeks, we will look at the plans as Falkenhayn created them for the attack at Verdun, which ends up being shockingly confusing in and of itself. We will then dig into all the pre-battle preparations done by both sides in the run-up to the battle. Then, of course, we will chronicle the struggles from the bare beginning on February 21st until the end of 1916. Over the course of the fighting, places like Douaumont, Vaux, Fleury, Moreholme, Cote 304, would become famous, or infamous. Finally, we will look at how the fighting affected not just the war, but found its special place in both German and French society. In many ways, Verdun became the First World War. It distills down all of the problems that the armies had been facing since 1914, all of the lessons that they thought they had learned, and showcased so many of the problems that they had not yet solved that they had to before they could obtain victory. It is my belief, and the belief of many historians, that the Germans lost the war in the ten months of fighting near Verdun. It is not just the casualties or the resources used that so negatively affected the German war effort, but instead the other tasks that those troops could have accomplished. There is so much to talk about, so let's get started by looking at Falkenhayn's outlook on the situation at the end of 1915. To put it bluntly, Falkenhayn entered the new year of the war very concerned that Germany may not be able to make it until December 31st. In January, he would tell Bethmann-Holwig that, quote, "...because of our economic and internal political conditions, it is extremely desirable to bring the war to an end before the winter of 1916-1917." End quote. Of course, all of the German leaders wanted the war to end soon, but Falkenhayn thought that the end of the year was a pretty hard date. He looked into the future and he saw an alliance against Germany that had far more men and far better sources of supply. What he could not foresee was the hardships that Germany would experience during the winter of 1916-1917, to 1917, a winter that would come to be called the Turnip Winter due to the food shortages experienced all over Germany, and even worse, in Austria-Hungary. The fact was that the British blockade was hitting Germany, and hitting them really hard. This fact would change Falkenhayn's opinions on whether or not Germany should pursue unrestricted submarine warfare, a pursuit that he would become a huge proponent of over the course of 1916. And with all of these thoughts in mind, Falkenhayn began to formulate a plan that he believed would win the war. In his planning, he rapidly came to the conclusion that would once again put him at odds with Hindenburg and Ludendorff, and would eventually lead to his replacement as chief of staff. He wanted to attack in the west, and not in the east. With the line where it was at the end of 1915, on the borders of Russia, or even pushing into the country itself, Falkenhayn believed that further attacks were very dangerous. He feared that the Russians would just keep retreating without falling apart, and the German army would be sucked further and further into Russia, needing more and more men to man the line and extending their supply lines to the breaking point. Falkenhayn, as well as every other military leader in Europe, including most of the Russian high command, believed that the large country was completely incapable of further offensive actions. 1915 had just hit it too hard. He was also of the belief that they were tottering on the edge of collapse from internal reasons. He would say this, quote, "...even if we cannot perhaps expect a revolution in a grand style." We are entitled to believe that Russia's internal troubles will compel her to give in within a relatively short period. In this connection, it may be granted she will not revive her military reputation meanwhile. Falkenhayn briefly considered an attack on the Italian front, but came to the conclusion that an attack there would not be decisive enough without a large number of Austrian troops being involved, Austrian troops that were far better placed on the Russian front. It is interesting to compare the decisions made by Falkenhayn in 1916 to those made by Hindenburg and Ludendorff in 1917, when they would attack on both the Russian and Italian fronts instead of the Western Front. Another reason that Falkenhayn wanted to attack in the West was that he was becoming genuinely concerned about the French and British offensive capabilities. The attacks in the fall had come far closer to accomplishing their goal than Falkenhayn was comfortable with. There could no longer be any denying the fact that the French were not being nearly as stupid in their attacks as they used to be, and the British were attacking in ever-increasing numbers. Falkenhayn did not know any of the specifics of the planned attack on the Somme, but he made the reasonable assumption that the French and British would both attack together at some point in the spring or summer of 1916. He did not necessarily believe it would be at the same point in the line, but the timing was almost certainly to be simultaneous. So with these facts in mind, he started to formulate his plan. Falkenhayn tried, in most ways, to be a realist when looking at what was possible in 1916. I like this quote from Verdun the Longest Battle by Paul Jankowski. Quote, Falkenhayn in 1915 brooded over the finite realm of the possible. While they craved to annihilate and conquer or imagined heady imperialist vistas, He struggled to devise deliverance from the unyielding strategic predicament of numbers and geography. And when he mentions they there, he's talking about Hindenburg and Ludendorff, who wanted their grand offensives. There were many things that Falkenhayn had to consider if he wanted any chance of making his plan successful, while at the same time not losing the war somewhere else. The first and most important was that Germany was now forced to have enough troops in reserve to counter a a stroke by their enemies anywhere, and not necessarily just against their front, but also against the Austrian fronts as well. This was thought to be essential in early 1916, and it would become somehow even more essential throughout the year. It is traditional thought that to achieve anything with an attack, you need at least a local numerical superiority. For the Germans in the west, they were already outnumbered, so this might be difficult. At the end of 1915, there were 120 German and 140 French and British divisions in the west, with the British number growing dramatically in the first half of 1916. Falkenhayn had the goal of having 25 divisions in reserve at all times. These were not taken from the Western Front, but they could not be committed to an attack either. So with 20 less divisions on a front, a broad front attack on the scale of, say, the Somme was just completely ruled out. It was just not going to happen. It is in the last few months of 1915 that the German word for war of attrition, or of exhaustion, starts to swirl around Falkenhayn's mind and starts to appear often in his writings. The German's word for the war of attrition is Urmattenskrieg. So I know I say this every time I throw out a large German word, but it's simply the best language when you're talking about conflict, or Mottenskrieg, or Mattenskrieg. You could say that the Germans had already been practicing this in the West for a year now. They had been on the defensive while the French and British attacked again and again. It is likely that if the Germans could stay on the defensive for the foreseeable future, they would win the war in this way. But that required time and Falkenhayn believed that they didn't have that required time. Therefore, Falkenhayn started to look for a way to accelerate the rate of exhaustion of his enemies. He wanted the process to go from a few years to a few months. What he wanted was Blitzermattenskrieg, which is not an actual word in German, I don't think, but if it was, I think it would mean lightning exhaustion war, or something like that. His thoughts on how to accomplish this feat and his outline for the German strategy were all written up in a letter to the Kaiser around Christmas. In this letter, he outlined his reasoning for attacking the French and Verdun specifically. This letter is extremely important to understand why the Germans made the decisions that they did in the lead-up to Verdun. It is an absolutely critical source for historians researching this area. There's just one problem nobody's actually sure that it really existed. The letter is only mentioned in Falkenhayn's memoirs, something that we are covering in great detail in the premium episodes right now, if you're curious. But the problem is that the memoirs are the only place that it appears. Nobody else deems it important enough to mention in the memoirs, and it doesn't appear in any contemporary documents either. The Kaiser specifically, the person who the letter was addressed to, does not mention it, which is somewhat concerning, because it's kind of important. In the letter, Falkenhayn specifically states that the reason for the attack at Verdun from the very beginning was attrition. The goal was never to actually capture the city itself. Since the Germans would never actually capture the city of Verdun, there's a lot of concern among historians that this letter was fabricated to reduce the blame placed on Falkenhayn. Maybe he's only backdating the idea of attrition to make up for the fact that Verdun was never captured. The unfortunate fact is that we will never know if the letter truly existed. To the great detriment of history, in the Allied bombings of 1945, the archives of the Imperial German Army were destroyed. It is almost certainly that if the letter existed, it was in those archives. So all we have to go on is Falkenhayn's word, which is not corroborated by any contemporaries or by any physical evidence. Since the publishing of his memoirs, most historians have accepted the letter as a matter of fact— This was especially true right after the war, when the French writers were trying to portray the German high command in the worst possible light. For most of the rest of the 20th century, the same narrative was spun by historians, and this viewpoint has become the standard view of events. But in recent years, the view on this topic has shifted, and it's starting to be considered as an excuse by Falkenhayn for his failure. If you believe that the letter is not real... It could completely change the motivations for the attack. So this puts things in an interest, puts us in an interesting position, specifically me. So I'm going to be pretty clear on the position that I'm taking on Falkenhayn's motives before we move forward, because we're going to be talking about his plans for the attack for the rest of this episode and a good portion of the next episode, and all of those are based on his motivations. I'm going to proceed forward under the assumption that even if the letter did not exist, the contents as stated by Falkenhayn accurately represent his mindset in late 1915 and early 1916. I'm assuming that Falkenhayn did not willfully misinterpret its contents to make him look better after the war. Please remember that this is a disputed fact of history, but I'm really doing it to simplify the narrative, so I'm not constantly referring to A or B depending on what you believe. I would also like to caution everybody to be wary of any source that does not mention the dubious authenticity of the letter. Even some very recent books proceed as if it existed without mentioning its disputed nature at all. I know this has been a pretty lengthy discussion of this letter and not actually about the contents of the letter, but I think it's important. So let's continue to look now at Falkenhayn's opinions on what was to be done in early 1916. Falkenhayn's overall goal for 1916 was to break the Entente and bring them to the peace table before the end of the year. Just a nice, tiny, small goal. You know, achievable stuff. Falkenhayn believed that he could launch an attack, and if it was successful, it would force one of the countries to the peace table, even without the other if that was required. And in this, already, the whole concept for the offensive may have been built on a fantasy. Falkenhayn had believed in 1915 that it was possible to bring Russia to the peace table to negotiate a separate peace, and this proved to be impossible. Here again, he believed that it was possible to do the same with one of the Western countries. And with this idea in mind, there were many decisions to make. The first was who to attack. Falkenheim considered the British to be the primary enemy of Germany, and he really wanted to get them out of the war, with the added benefit of ending the blockade, which he believed was just one facet of the War of Exhaustion that Britain was waging against Germany. In 1915, he would write that, quote, "...she is staking everything on a war of exhaustion. We have not been able to shatter her belief that it will bring Germany to her knees. What we have to do is dispel that illusion." End quote. But while Falkenhayn considered them a great threat, he also believed that he could not attack them directly. By the beginning of 1916, the density of troops on the British front was greater than at any point on the French front. They had many fewer troops than the French, but they were also holding just a fraction of the total Western front. This meant that the German attack would have to fall against the French, who Falkenhayn did not think very highly of, especially their ability to continue to wage war. His thoughts on their ability to wage war were built on some pretty shaky assumptions, the first being that the strain on the French society and the failures of the armies and the casualties that they had suffered meant that they were close to a breaking point. The strain on France, he wrote, was, quote, reached a breaking point, though it is certainly born with the most remarkable devotion if we succeed in opening the eyes of her people to the fact that in a military sense they have nothing to hope for. That breaking point would be reached, and England's best sword knocked out of her hand End quote. Falkenhayn believed that this strain would manifest in several ways. The most important was that the French people would demand the government seek peace. In this belief, Falkenhayn also shows his belief that the government form of a republic, which French which the French were in 1914, was fundamentally flawed during times of national strain, like a war. He believed that if giving the citizens of a country such power over the government, the ability of the country to withstand the strain of the war was fundamentally weakened. You see the same assumption at times today, when looking at various democracies around the world and their wars with other countries. The problem with this assumption was that it depended on the French people fully understanding the failures of the army and how bad the situation really was, which they absolutely didn't. Joffre had many failings, we could have whole episodes about the things he did wrong, but the one thing he did right was his ability to keep the true situation at the front secret from the government and from the people. The second piece of Falkenhayn's assumption was the casualties he believed the French to be suffering, which were grossly overestimated. This overestimating is not a fault of Falkenhayn's, it's a problem that every side suffered from throughout the war. In this case, it led Falkenhayn to believe that just a little strain placed upon the French army over a long enough period might result in it falling apart.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?
1: In these beliefs, Falkenhayn was pulling from everything he had learned in 1915. The war was a constant learning process, after all, and we will spend some time before the Battle of the Somme talking about the lessons learned by Joffre and Haig. But on the German side, the most important lesson learned by Falkenhayn was that the Germans were not capable of launching some great decisive offensive that would lead to glorious victory in a march through Paris. The French attacks in 1915 reaffirmed this belief, If we look at all of the offensives we discussed last year, it becomes clear that the side of the defense had a great advantage in the long run. Sure, everybody had solved the taking of the first trench, maybe the first couple of trenches, but moving that success further still remained an unsolved problem that often resulted in a lot of casualties. The defense was just too good at falling back on the second and third lines of trenches and then being reinforced by more, more troops and then counterattacking while the attackers were moving away from their supplies and reinforcements. Even when the Germans had launched a huge offensive that was successful, like in Poland, there was still no decisive victory. Most importantly, at least at Falkenhayn, the French had tried several times with more troops than he could commit to his attack, and they had failed spectacularly. Even if you assume that the Germans would have better artillery, and you're attributing some sort of superhuman ability to the German infantry, it still seemed impossible for the Germans to do so much more with so much less. All of these facts would turn Falkenhayn's belief in the impossibility of a decisive breakthrough into an ironclad assertion that he would base everything on. Quote, The lessons to be deduced from the failures of our enemy's mass material attacks are decisive against any imitation of their battle methods. Attempts at a mass breakthrough, even with the extreme accumulation of men and materiel, cannot be regarded as holding out the prospects of success." The other lesson that Falkenhayn learned from the French offensives, which I mentioned earlier, was that he always had to keep a reserve. No matter what, no matter how tempting it was to put in just a few more divisions to get that attack going, he had to keep a reserve. I think that in some ways I undersold how impactful the fall French offensives were last year. They really spooked Falkenhayn and some other German leaders. While from the French side they seemed like horrible failures, the Germans saw how close they came to breaking through with very few German troops available to stop them due to how thin the German troops were spread all around Europe. To quote Falkenhayn, quote, I am responsible. I do not want to come to the same dangerous situation as in the autumn of 1915 during the battle in the Champagne. I will not allow that to happen again." End quote. Falkenhayn would roll these lessons into his plan, which we will now, finally, discuss in some detail. To achieve that object, the uncertain method of mass breakthrough, in any case beyond our means, is unnecessary. We can probably do enough for our purposes with limited resources. Within our reach behind the French sector of the Western Front, there are objectives for the retention of which the French general staff would be compelled to throw in every man they have. If they do so, the forces of France will bleed to death. The objectives of which I am speaking of are Belfort and Verdun. The considerations urged above apply to both, yet the preference must be given to Verdun. End quote. That is another direct quote from Falkenhayn. He went through several different iterations of the German operational plan for 1916. The first iteration involved three German offensives with the targets of Belfort, Verdun, and then somewhere in the Vosges Mountains. Belfort was a fortified city similar to Verdun, only much closer to the Swiss border in the south. In subsequent iterations of the plan, the two other offensives were taken off the table due to manpower needs, and it was narrowed down to just Verdun. But there was another piece of the plan, beyond the attack at Verdun, that is often forgotten because it never came to actually pass. The attack on Verdun was just the first phase of Falkenhayn's plan. He believed that there were three ways that the French might respond to such an attack, and all of them played into the German second phase in some way. The first option was that they might believe Verdun to be unassailable, in which case the Germans would just attack, take the city, and probably be done. This might be a bit disappointing, but would be a solid propaganda victory if nothing else. The second option was that the French might send massive reinforcements to the city, This was also generally thought to be an okay outcome, since it would limit the French troops available for other offensives in the year, and would increase the number of French troops in an area that was under heavy German artillery control. The third option, and the most desirable to Falkenhayn, was that the French might launch an attack somewhere else to relieve the pressure on Verdun, probably in Champagne or Artois again. The hope was that the attack at Verdun would force them to launch these attacks prematurely, before preparations were complete, and this would let Falkenhayn enact phase 2 of his plan. In phase 2, the Germans would be ready with a number of divisions to launch a huge counterattack immediately after a French failed attack. Up to this point, most German counterattacks have been small and localized, just trying to roll back some French gains. But in this case, Falkenhayn hoped to turn a counterattack into a full-fledged offensive, right into a depleted and disorganized French army. Falkenhayn believed that he would need at least part of his 25-division reserve in this attack. And while this was the plan, it would never come to pass, because one thing that Falkenhayn did not foresee happening, and that was just how important Verdun would become for both sides and its magnetic attraction that would constantly pull more and more troops into the lines to replace those that were lost. The Germans would end up getting pulled far deeper into the attack than Falkenhayn originally wanted and it would mean that they would lose any hope of launching a large counterattack against any future attacks by the French and British. Before we end today, I'm going to spend just a second talking about the Allied mindset on the Western Front. I'm not going to spend too long on it because it's probably better left for later episodes, and we touched on it a bit in episode 61, but it's important to at least touch on some facts here before we move on with our story. The fact is that Verdun would be hugely disruptive for the French and British plans in 1916. Joffre would try, and boy let me tell ya, he tried, to not let it happen, but it would. Even into March, while the Germans were at their strongest at Verdun, Joffre treated it like a secondary theater. This response was due to the fact that Joffre was fully convinced that the German attack was simply a feint, designed to make him change his plans and lose the initiative, the plans that had been made had been in the planning stages for almost three months when Verdun started. At the end of nineteen fifteen the French and British looked upon their manpower advantage, and they were quite happy. The British now had a million men on the continent, and the number kept growing. The introduction of conscription on the islands meant that the flow of men to the front would not be slowing down any time soon. On the French side they had almost three million soldiers on the front. In the minds of the two army leaders, they just had to find a spot to use all these men and the slow road to victory would open. The coming attack, and the belief that headcount really mattered that much at all, showcases a somewhat fundamental misunderstanding, even at this late date, of how strong the Germans were in 1916. The first problem was that manpower simply didn't mean that much on the battlefields of the Western Front. And in some ways, the commanders all knew this, like 1915 had proven that, but they just didn't quite understand how little of an advantage the sizes that they had really gave them. They could take some ground here and there by sheer numbers, sure, but that was there was a finite limit to what this would allow them to do, as the British would find out very quickly on July the 1st. Machine guns and artillery would always restore the battlefield to its static nature once the attack left the comforting blanket of the artillery, and almost no number of soldiers could fix this in 1916. There was also an underestimation of how many troops the Germans had, and this is why Joffre put so much stock in having every country attack at the same time. Everybody believed that the only way the Germans were still in this war was they were frantically shuffling troops back and forth between fronts as crises arose. The Germans certainly did this to some level, but it was rarely out of panic and would almost never use the word frantic to describe it. This belief by the French and British caused them to misunderstand how many troops the Germans had, believing that each front must be in a vacuum weak. Joffre even wished that the Germans would attack, since they would be attacking a numerically superior enemy. That development, Joffre told the government and his allies at the end of January, quote, would thus be entirely favorable to us, and we can only hope that it will come to pass. End quote. So you can see how all of these beliefs just made Joffre and Haig more confident in their upcoming attack. They believed that the Germans were weak, and that every day that they attacked at Verdun, they were crippling themselves and their ability to react to the upcoming attack. As the spring wore on, the plans for the sum began to be affected by the attack at Verdun, though. First, it was the movement of the attack from late summer to midsummer. Then, it was the drastic reduction of French forces from 40 to 25 divisions. All of this meant that when the attack on the Somme came, it was reduced significantly from the original plans. The worst part about the whole situation from a French perspective is that if the Germans had decided to, say, attack Russia in 1916, the attack on the Somme would have had a high chance of making a huge dent in the German lines. It would have been almost a third larger than it was, and it would have had more French artillery against less German troops. The podcast will not be covering the attacks on The Sum for several months, but expect it to weave in and out of our narrative in the upcoming months as the two great battles on the Western Front affect and change each other. I'm sort of hoping that everybody has at least enough knowledge of The Sum to know what I'm talking about. This week, our source of the week is The Price of Glory by Alistair Horne. Since its release in 1994, this book has become THE book for people who want to learn about the struggle for Verdun in 1916. It isn't the longest or the most in-depth, but it gives the reader a ton of information while still actually being readable. This book probably comes in on my top five recommendations for books to read about the war, and it's the perfect book to give to anybody who has never read about Verdun and has only heard the name in larger histories. If there was a criticism to level against the book, it would be that it was largely French-focused in its storytelling, but that's really to be expected from English accounts of the battle. Overall, I give this book my highest recommendation. Next week, we will dive deeper into the German plans of Verdun, as well as give a quick history about the city and its fortifications. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.